1: Today is Wednesday, July 7th, 2021. On this day in 2004, former Enron CEO Kenneth Lay was indicted for fraud. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm joined by our guest host, Dana Goodyear, from Lost Hills. Her show delves into the shocking murder of scientist Tristan Baudet. Dana will discuss some of the historical aspects of today's story while I'll cover the narrative.
2: Thank you so much, Vanessa. I'm really looking forward to talking about Enron with you and the scandalous fall of that company.
1: Absolutely. Now let's go back to July 7th, 2004, when all eyes were on the world of white-collar crime. It's rare for an indictment to be national news. Indictments are only the first step in the long road to a conviction, a simple process to determine whether prosecutors have enough evidence to take a suspect to trial. But when the person in the hot seat is the former CEO of a company synonymous with corporate wrongdoing, people pay attention. The proceedings on July 7th were not particularly cinematic. A grand jury heard evidence from the SEC in closed-door proceedings. There was no press or audience in the courtroom when they announced their decision. But there was plenty of buzz about whether Kenneth Lay would face consequences for the collapse of his company. Since Enron had declared bankruptcy in late 2001, the investigations into those involved in the scandal had enthralled the country. But Ken Lay was a bigger fish than most, and it wasn't clear he could be caught. Proving a CEO culpable for fraud that occurred at their company is complicated. Prosecutors would need to present evidence that Lay either personally knew about the fraud or willfully ignored telltale signs. Anything less wouldn't reach the level of criminal misconduct. The release of the indictment was the spark that set off an explosion of media coverage. It paved the way for one of the highest profile white collar trials in American history. To fully understand the case, we need to take a step back and discuss Enron as a company. Lay had been there from the very beginning when two natural gas pipelines merged in 1985 and the company was formed. In its earliest days, Enron wasn't particularly remarkable. Due to strict regulations, natural gas transactions only occurred in long-term steady contracts. The energy industry was a safe, unexciting business. All of that changed in the early 1990s when deregulation of the energy market shook the status quo. Suddenly, Enron and other energy companies had the opportunity to make shorter term deals. This gave Enron more opportunities to change prices and react to the levers of supply and demand. In the long run, this raised prices and profits. With more money, the companies could diversify their portfolios. Instead of just owning pipelines, Enron bought other means of energy production and distribution. But perhaps more importantly, Enron now had room to take bigger risks. Jeff Skilling, a senior executive, used this shift to completely rethink the company. Enron transformed from an entity that owned pipelines to a sort of catch-all investment business. They sold a lot of their pipes while maintaining financial connections or control over energy producers, transporters, and providers. However, bigger risks meant bigger potential losses. Enron had to maintain ever-growing profits to keep investors happy and keep them from selling their stocks. One of their young hotshot executives had the solution. And this was where the fraud entered the picture. First, the company shifted to a system known as mark-to-market accounting. Basically, this allowed Enron to report potential earnings from new contracts as immediate profit. For example, in July of 2000, the company entered a video-on-demand deal with Blockbuster, which was expected to produce $110 million in profit over 20 years. Enron reported all of that profit as coming in the moment the contract was signed, with no way of knowing whether it would actually ever manifest. It did not. An elaborate and intentionally convoluted system of accounts and shell corporations were set up to allow Enron to hide their debt from their investors. They could take out a loan, move it around dozens or hundreds of times, and then report that money as income, It was textbook fraud. Lay himself was most responsible for the final piece of the puzzle. As all of this change was happening at Enron, investors were consistently told the company was in great shape. Lay silenced any questions to the contrary. Jeff Skilling did the same thing after he replaced Lay as CEO in early 2001. The executives at Enron explicitly lied to investors about the company's debt, risks, and available cash. Things went wrong quickly. After an incredibly short tenure as CEO, Skilling resigned, putting Lay back in the driver's seat in August of 2001. Lay continued to assure investors the company was fine, but soon it became clear that Enron was a house of cards. By December 2001, the company was bankrupt. Three years later, in July 2004, Kenneth Lay was finally facing consequences, but much was still unknown. There was no guarantee the indictment would actually lead to a conviction. Coming up, the trial of Kenneth Lay and the lessons of the scandal.
0: The CIA. They're the first line of defense for the United States, analyzing intelligence to thwart any possible threats and keep us safe. Some of their involvements are made public and others aren't. Hi, it's Carter from ParCast, and in honor of America's birthday, we're uncovering the cases you were never supposed to know about in the new series, Conspiracy Theories, CIA Edition. From international assassination plots and mind control experiments, to catastrophic cover-ups and secret societies fit for film, sift through the agency's most questioned and controversial affairs. Each week, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition exposes the covert operations intended to protect us from conflicts, but end up creating conspiracies. Where does the truth lie? Where do the lies end? And how much do we really want to know? Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen every Thursday, free and only on Spotify.
1: Now, back to the story. On July 7th, 2004, Enron founder and CEO Kenneth Lay was indicted for fraud. The move raised serious questions about if and when CEOs were culpable for crimes committed at their company. My guest host, Dana Goodyear, is gonna take over from here to discuss the trial and fallout of the Enron scandal.
2: Thanks, Vanessa. The day following the indictment, the SEC released a statement outlining the case against Lay. At their core, the accusations were simple. Lay knew what was going on at his own company. When he told investors things were going well, he was deliberately lying. But in late 2001, as the business was collapsing, the SEC alleged particular wrongdoing. According to the charges, when Skilling resigned as CEO, he explicitly told Lay and the board that the company was failing. The ship was sinking and he was jumping off. Over the next several months, however, Lay continued to tell investors that Enron was recovering. He said so even as the company was forced to change their earnings for the third quarter of 2001 due to previously unreported losses. The smoking gun for all this was Lay's personal stock sales. He sold millions in stock back to Enron while he encouraged investors to hold on to their own shares. Lay's defense team, on the other hand, argued he really didn't know what was going on. According to Lay, CFO Andrew Fastow and other executives at the company were responsible for the fraud. He only repeated to investors what these executives told him. As far as he knew, the company was doing great. Where his stocks were concerned, Lay claimed the transactions were simply a part of his regular portfolio management. He said he wasn't even aware of them until after the bankruptcy. These excuses were soon put to the test. Kenneth Lay and Jeff Skilling were tried by a single jury in 2006. The prosecutors tackled Lay's assertion of ignorance head on. They argued that even if Lay and Skilling were ignorant, they had a fiduciary duty to their investors to be aware of what happened to the company and they had a ringer in their corner. Former Enron VP Sharon Watkins told the court she had brought her concerns about the company's finances to Lay directly. He investigated her claims, but according to the prosecution, Lay intentionally limited the scope of the inquiry to prevent the fraud from being discovered. In May 2006, Lay was convicted of six counts of fraud and conspiracy, as well as four counts of bank fraud, but he was never sentenced. He died that July of a massive heart attack. The fallout from the Enron scandal is far-reaching and, in some ways, unsatisfying. Despite the myriad abuses to our financial system, few laws were changed afterward. But the conviction of Kenneth Lay did mean something important for CEO culpability. The idea that people at the top of a company are responsible for everything that happens underneath. For a CEO, ignorance is not an excuse. They have a duty to know what's happening at their companies. That principle hasn't always been upheld, however. In 2010, Jeff Skilling appealed his conviction. While his sentence wasn't overturned, the US Supreme Court ruled partially in his favor, saying that CEOs must be directly engaged in the actual fraud to be found criminally liable. So while it raises ethical questions for a CEO to turn a blind eye to fraud, Convicting them is incredibly difficult without solid proof, such as bribery. There's a lot to think about when it comes to the fall of Enron. Unfortunately, there's a general consensus that the lessons learned from the scandal were the wrong ones. The next Enron, which could come at any time, will likely be even harder to punish.
1: I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thanks again, Dana, for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me. You can find my podcast, Lost Hills, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: And you can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive-produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by John McDonough, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, and fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. Today in True Crime stars Dana Goodyear and Vanessa Richardson.
0: Hi, it's Carter from Parcast. Every Thursday on Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition, we're uncovering secrets hidden deep within the archives of the Central Intelligence Agency to bring you a special collection of episodes from shows across our network. Follow the new Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories CIA Edition. Listen free only on Spotify.